I have literally been waiting about two and a half months to say this. Take your Bible and let's get back into the book of Romans and turn to Romans chapter 9 this morning. So we're going to continue something we started way back in January, just walking verse by verse through what has been called the greatest letter ever written, the book of Romans. So go ahead and find your place there, uh, Romans 9.1. If you need a Bible, there is a copy of God's Word in the seat pocket in front of you. I invite you to take that as our gift to you. Also, just as we get started this morning, let me do a quick shout out this morning. I think it's really important to all of us. Uh, we could gather for worship without lights, screens, internet, power, any of that. We could do it. But this morning, we enjoy all of these things. And there's a team of people back there in that booth. When they arrived here Thursday morning, we had none of that because of a lightning strike that wiped everything out. So there's been a lot of people who's been working very hard behind the scenes to even allow us to have these things we enjoy this morning. So can we just say a big thank you to that team that's back there. Guys, thank you all very much. Romans. Now, as I said earlier, the book of Romans has been called the most important letter that's ever been written in history. History has revealed that the book of Romans has repeatedly changed the world by changing people. The Apostle Paul writes this great letter of Romans from the city of Corinth to a group of believers into what was the de facto capital of the world at that time, the city of Rome. And Paul's writing, he's writing to really get that church's support of a missionary journey he's going to take to Spain in the years to come, or that he wants to take to Spain. He wants the church at Rome to come around him. But in the middle of that, he writes one of the greatest explanations anywhere in the Bible of what the gospel is, the implications of the gospel in our lives. And the book of Romans is just a humbling God-exalting, painfully practical book that's written to us believers. Now, I think one of the reasons that Romans in that day, and I think even in this day, is so impacting, is in that day, in a sea of confusion and moral relativism, the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit of God with incredible, sobering clarity from the mouth of God. Now listen, one of the reasons I think Romans is incredibly practical and painfully true for us today is we live in a culture of extreme confusion, extreme relativism, and we have a word with sobering clarity from God. And we need that. And the book of Romans is so painfully practical and clear to us. Paul without, Paul, without hesitation at the beginning of this letter, declares some things to be true from the mouth of God. Now, if you were not with us back in the spring, I'm going to do just a very quick review of what we studied in eight chapters of Romans. So hang on for a second. I hope you go back and review it on your own. But Paul starts... Back in chapter 1 with a great statement, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
So from the very beginning of this letter, Paul writes a defense of the gospel, and he says the message of the gospel, the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ, is the only message by which men and women can be made right with God. With incredible clarity, Paul declares that to be true. He says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel message. And then he writes uh, uh, this letter to explain the impact and the implications of the gospel message, the finished work of Christ. Paul writes without apology (laughs) of the condition of all mankind. Remember back in January, we walked through three painful chapters at the beginning of the book of Romans where Paul answers the question, okay, what is the spiritual condition in our natural state of all human beings? And Paul writes, Romans 3.10, it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul, what is the verdict on all mankind left to ourselves? Guilty, without righteousness, condemned. And that's what Paul declares unapologetically in the beginning of the book of Romans. He goes on to Romans 1.18 and he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Paul says, you need to know something because of our sin. We are under the just wrath of a holy God. Now you're not going to hear that on CNN or Fox News. But Paul unapologetically declares our condition left to ourselves before God. Paul David Tripp said this, to talk about the essential nature of God's grace means first talking about the disaster of sin, right? So Paul takes several chapters here, the beginning of Romans, and talks about the disaster and the implications of sin. And then he comes to chapter, into chapter 3, going into chapter 4 and says, okay, is there hope? Paul holds out the hope of the gospel. In chapter 5, he says, but God. Aren't you thankful for that little phrase, by the way? But God demonstrates his own love toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul sums it up there in the sense that there is hope. How can the gap between a righteous, holy God and unrighteous humanity ever be bridged? And Paul declares unashamedly there is one way, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Clear in Romans. Paul goes on, he says, and man's only response to that is so that he, God, would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Our response to the gospel invitation is one of repentance, turning from our own way, and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Paul declares this faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ is how we are made right with God. To God be the glory. And we we studied through that for several weeks in Romans. And then if you remember, we got to Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. And Paul unfolds the blessings of redemption. What is now true of you and I who have placed faith in Christ? What are these blessings, this security that we have, this life in the Spirit? And Paul, man, I just encourage you to go back and review this on your own. Paul declares some things that are true of us in Christ. He says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Christ as believers. We are in this living union with Jesus. What is true of Christ is true of us. His death became our death. His life is now our life. 
We are declared righteous positionally, and God is working in us daily to make us righteous practically in our daily lives. We are new creations and dwelt by the very Spirit of God. We are a partaker of the divine nature. We are now dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have been awakened, made alive by the Spirit who indwells us. We are secure in Christ forever. The Spirit helps us, leads us, declares us to be adopted children of God. He works all things for our ultimate good. We are more than conquerors, never any condemnation, never any separation. And then you get to this climax of chapter 8 and Paul declares, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything to come, anything that's ever been, will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's good stuff, right? Now, that's a quick overview of Romans 1 through 8, so go back and study it on your own. But you get to the end of chapter 8, where we left off a few months ago, and the Apostle Paul takes you to this climax of reality, this truth of the gospel that is true in Christ. And you're left with just this lofty, amazing view of God and His grace. Chapter 9. You've never studied through chapter 9 on your own, or you've never read chapter 9 coming off of chapter 8, you're going to think that Paul might be a little bit bipolar. Paul goes from these lofty heights of truth of who God is and the promises that are ours in Christ, and then you come to Romans chapter 9, and he says, it is with great sorrow and unceasing anguish that I'm now writing this next chapter. Paul, what's going on here? Paul, what's happening in this chapter? Romans chapter 9 has been referred to as the puzzle of Romans. Really, 9 through 11 is where we're going to be together over the next few weeks. And I'll just tell you again, don't think of this as one message and then another message. All this is going to kind of blend together for the next few weeks. And I'll say what I said earlier because this is hugely important to you. You're probably going to leave today and next week with more questions than you have answers. But I encourage you to continue to come back. Let's let the Word of God interpret the Word of God and bring us to a place of worship. We're not going to have solutions to all our answers, but God is going to exalt Himself through His Word. And I want us to do that together over the next few weeks. This is a chapter that's often a source of great controversy. Let's just own that together. These next few chapters are often skipped over. A lot of Pastors and churches and preachers would just prefer to go on to the good stuff, if you will, in Romans chapter 12. But we and your elders and your teaching pastors have a commitment to teach through every word of Scripture. Because it's from the mouth of God. So let's look together, coming off of Romans chapter 8. Let's see what's going on here in Romans chapter 9. You can follow along. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. If you write in your Bible, I encourage you to underline some of these words here that describes the heart of the Apostle Paul as he is writing these next few verses and these next few chapters in Romans. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. 
as we go into these next few chapters, just know that they are being written under the inspiration of God's Spirit by a man whose heart is broken. His heart, he says, I'm deeply grieved. I have unceasing anguish. And it makes you want to say, Paul, what is troubling you to the point that you would go from the heights of Romans 8 and all the promises there now to Romans 9 where it's great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Listen, it's interesting to me, and I'll just say that these first few verses are some of these verses that have been incredibly convicting to me. I went into Romans 9 kind of having a general idea of what I thought it was about, but God's wore me out with these first few verses. This is a theologically rich and deep chapter, but this chapter begins with the man whose heart is broken. Paul, what's your heart broken about? Keep reading, verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. And if you wonder what that word means, that word literally means separated from Christ. Paul says, if I could, now I couldn't, but he's speaking metaphorically in a sense, but with great passion. He says, I wish that I I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Why would you say something like that, Paul? Middle of verse 3. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Stop right there. Paul is saying, my heart is broken over my people Israel. So the big heading, if you will, of a lot of this is, okay, what about Israel? What about the Jewish people? And Paul is a Jew and he's writing. At the time of this writing, when Paul writes this letter... And is true today as the gospel is advancing throughout the world in the Gentile world, non-Jew, the vast majority of Jewish people reject Jesus and their Messiah and stand condemned in unbelief. And Paul recognizes that as a reality then just as it is a reality today. And Paul says, my heart breaks for my Jewish brethren who are missing their Messiah. It's killing him. Listen, I don't know if your understanding or faith or belief in the gospel of Jesus has ever been shaken because of some or maybe because of many who reject and don't believe. Paul is saying, my heart is broken in anguish over my kinsmen, the Jews. Now, Paul has personal grief here because he is a Jew and he loves his people. group from our church travels to Israel every two years and one of the takeaways for me every time I go is to look upon a people the nation of Israel who have been given so many blessings and promises from God as the Jewish people and you go there and you realize the vast majority of Jewish people today as well reject Jesus as their Messiah and there is a heartbreak over that Paul understands that Paul has been accused as a traitor against his people because he teaches a gospel that says you must believe in Jesus the Messiah when many of his Jewish brethren reject Jesus as the Messiah Paul has been called a traitor that breaks his heart and side note even as Paul writes Romans he writes from the city of Corinth of great love for his Jewish brothers and sisters as he writes from Corinth in Acts 19 the previous chapters he has been hounded and his life has been sought by the Jewish people who are trying to kill him and he says I love these people that's pretty convicting 
So Paul writes of this great anguish. He says, I would give my own soul if my kinsmen would believe. Paul's deep, rich, biblical understanding of the gospel has left him with a brokenness over the people who do not know Christ. Now watch this. I want everybody to look up here for a minute. Therefore, as we dig into a very theologically rich chapter, let me just say this. If your theology or my theology leaves us in a place of passive indifference toward lost people, you do not have the theology of the Apostle Paul. So as we dig into a chapter that we're going to have different perspectives and we may not even agree on every angle that Paul writes here, just know this chapter begins with a man whose heart is broken over people that do not, re do not believe in Jesus as their Messiah. God, give us that kind of heart as a church, right? Lord, make us believe rightly, make us people of the book, of your word, by your spirit, and give us a heart that we would say, I have unceasing grief and anguish over my neighbor, over my family member, over my son, over my daughter, over that people group that did not know Christ. That's the heart of Paul. Now Paul goes on. He continues. Verse 4, he, he hits a couple things here in verse 4 and 5 that are realities of the Jewish people. And he says, so many blessings have been extended to the Jewish people. Just read through these quickly. He says, they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. They have the glory, the presence of God with them throughout the Old Testament. The covenants, Abrahamic, the Davidic covenant, all the covenants, the giving of the law, the Torah, the worship, the promises. Verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs. They got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those great figures. And from their race, he says, on top of all that, you want a blessing that's been given to the people of Israel? He says, on top of all that, into verse 5, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. He says, on top of all that, the Messiah is a Jew. Uh, newsflash, Jesus Christ in his flesh was a Jew. Paul says, all these blessings to the Jewish people. Then look at the end of verse 5, and he says, who is the Christ, the Messiah, and listen to this little statement. He says, who is God over all? Paul makes a clear declaration here of the de deity of Jesus Christ and describes him as God over all, blessed forever, amen. Paul is so grieved here, he declares Jesus to be God. Therefore, he is saying to the people of Israel, your rejection of Messiah is a rejection of God. It's breaking his heart. So Paul has this personal anguish here, but then it's more than that. And this is what's really going to guide us through the rest of the next few verses. Paul has this personal anguish over Israel, but then, watch, the rejection of Israel of the Messiah poses another problem. And Paul hits on that at the beginning of verse 6, and this affects every one of us in this room. Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Stop right there. Paul has a personal brokenness over Israel rejection, and then he realizes there is a potential stumbling block because of Israel's rejection of their Messiah. And Paul's issue here for us and for the people of that day, the church at Rome, remember? Jews, Gentiles together in this church, the gospel going to now the Gentile world, declaring the message of the gospel to be true. And here's Paul's predicament. 
Does Israel's rejection mean God's redemptive plan has failed? Now that's the line of thinking Paul has here. And that's why he's going to say what he's going to say in the subsequent verses. It is easy for those who are critics to say in the city of Rome and throughout the world at that time. And maybe even you've had these kind of conversations. Yes, the gospel of Christ is true. You can trust the word of God. God keeps his promises. He is faithful to who he is. And someone could say, really? Well, what about the people of Israel? The vast majority of them reject. And you expect me to believe in that God? That's the line of thinking. Have the promises of God failed in light of the rejection of God's chosen people? What do you do with that? What's Paul going to do with that? It'd be like this. i just give you a quick illustration. Say, I come to you and I say, you want a house built? And I'm a builder and I say, okay, I'm going to build you a house. And you'll love it and it'll stand against any storm. And somebody looks at you and says, well, tell me about the last house you built. Well, uh, it's kind of laying in shambles down by the river. It didn't stand, but you could trust me to build this next house. You got no way, man. Those of that day who wanted to be critics could say, you want us to trust the God, the God of Israel when the majority of that nation rejects their Messiah? Paul has a, a predicament here. And that's why he says in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. He goes on, verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul, what are you trying to communicate here? We're going to have a big truth that's going to guide us through the next couple of weeks. And then we'll have some big ideas that flow out of that big truth. Big truth comes right out of verse 6. Here it is. Ready? God's redemptive plan will not fail. God's plan of redemption determined before the world began will not fail, Paul is saying, despite the circumstances you see of the rejection of so many, and the, namely the Jewish people. God's plan, God's word has not failed. Now, time out. Stop right there. This is important for you and me, brothers and sisters. Because, man, we love the truths of Romans 8, and we love all the truths that we walk through in Romans, but it would be easy to say, how then can we trust that God will keep his promises to us if the same promises seem to be extended to Israel and the nation of Israel has rejected in droves? How do we deal with that? So to answer that question, Paul is going to dive over the next few verses into the deep recesses, if you will, of the mind and the character and the purposes of God. Paul is going to deal with some things over the next few verses that, let me put it this way, are probably not the nature of things that you deal on the first day of a new believer's class, okay? And you're going to be tempted to say, well, some of these things are just over my head. I'm going to quote Pastor Daniel Broyles. As believers, let's pick up our head. And let's grapple with some of these things that Paul's going to reveal about the nature of God. He's going to say things like, God operates in history, particularly when it comes to the salvation of men and women. God operates with complete, free, divine sovereignty. God freely chooses. And that grates against us in our humanity. He's going to th say things like, God acts with mercy towards some while others are hardened in unbelief. Some receive mercy, but it seems some do not. Why is that? Help us understand that, Lord. 
He's going to deal with things like we are a lump of clay in the hand of the potter and God has all authority over his lumps of clay to do whatever he wants to do with the lumps of clay. And let me just say, in our culture of self-determination, we don't like that. (laughs) God's going to deal with some of these things here in Romans 9 that are going to be humbling and pride-crushing and God-exalting, and we need them. So let me give one caveat, and then we're going to continue through these. That is why my prayer for me, and I've been doing this for the last few months, wrestling through these chapters, and my prayer for you, listen, is that we will approach Romans 9 through 11, particularly with humble repentance of heart. Meaning. God, I thought I understood some things about you, but your word is transforming even how I see you. Watch this now. Can I just give you a light illustration just to kind of... Sometimes our perspectives need to be changed a little bit by truth. I remember when I was a little boy, and it was Christmas season in Irwin, where I grew up, and it was a couple days before Christmas, And I was real little, and Santa showed up to my house. He did. I didn't know who it was. My parents were there. I still believed in Santa and all that jazz. And Santa showed up, and he walked through, and he was carrying a bag on his back. And he had presents in his bag, and he set him down by the tree. And I remember this distinctly as a little boy. I was thinking, Santa is here. And then Santa left pretty quickly, and Santa walked out the front door of our porch, and I ran to the window. I, I remember this distinctly. And I said, I'm going to watch Santa get in his reindeer, and I'm looking for Donner and Blitzen and all those guys. And I looked, and Santa got in a Ford station wagon and drove off. <laughs> My perspective was altered a little bit that night. Here's what I want to happen over the next few weeks. Our understanding of who God is is altered, not by our presuppositions, but by the revealed truth of God's word. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, always see to it or stand to it that your creed must bend to the Bible and not the Bible to your creed. You say, I don't have creeds. Whatever you come in here with could be your creed. And dare to be a little inconsistent with yourselves, if need be, sooner than be inconsistent with God's revealed truth. So this bend in repentance, our understandings of who God is in line with his revealed truth over the next few weeks. Amen? All right, let's press on together. Here's our big truth. God's redemptive plan will not fail. Okay? Give me some defense of that, Paul. How can you say that? How can we bank? How can we trust that God's redemptive plan is not going to fail? Paul's going to give you two illustrations here in the text. The first one begins in verse 6. He's going to give an illustration about Isaac and Ishmael, some truth we're going to learn from that. Then he's going to give an illustration of Jacob and Esau, Old Testament stories, and there's some things we can learn from that. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Paul starts here and says there was a common Jewish thought of the day that causes some stumbling blocks here. And here was the thought. To be ethnically Jewish, that is born of Abraham, 
in the mind of the day meant I'm automatically right with God. All Jews under the promise of God. All Jews will inherit all the promises of God. That was the mindset of the day. That was never what was taught throughout the Old Testament, but that was the mindset of the day. So Paul says, when you see many of these Jews who are stumbling and who are not believing, Paul says, remember something, not all who are descended of Israel belong to Israel. Meaning, not all ethnic Jews are necessary children of God who are spiritually right with God. Paul makes that distinction. He goes on. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not every individual ethnic physical Jew is part of the spiritual covenant people. Not every individual Jew was ever intended to be part of the spiritual covenant people. And from that, Paul says, here's an example of God making some choices or selections in carrying out his redemptive plan. Now, we're going to have one big idea to support the big truth today. Now, next week we'll have several more as we go through the rest of the chapter. Here's the big idea that's going to be supported by what Paul says in the following verses. Number one, big idea number one is this. God redeems on the basis of his unconditional sovereign choice. Now, the word choice in your Bible, the word election may be there, same word. We're, we're heading into an election season. We don't really like the word election, but it's not the same idea. The word election simply means a choice, a determination made by God. Paul says, let's take the instance of Isaac and Ishmael. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Verse 7, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Paul says, remember the story of Isaac and Ishmael? Abraham had two sons, Isaac, Ishmael. One was chosen to be the son of promise and one was not. Verse 8, what does this mean? Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Not all Israel belong to Israel. Not all ethnic Jews are spiritually God's children. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Speaking of Isaac. Paul, what are you saying here? Paul is making a clear declaration in the pattern of God's redemptive purpose, and here it is. God made a choice not based on who those boys were, but simply by his sovereign free choice. God chose Isaac to be the son of promise and not Ishmael. Now hang with me. So your big idea is this. God redeems on the basis of his unconditional sovereign choice. God's redemptive choice is not based on who we are. That's the point he wants us to see in that illustration of Isaac and Ishmael. God makes a choice, it's sovereign and free, and you can trust that God's going to carry out his purpose because it's rooted in his sovereign choice. First thing we see about that, it is based not in who we are. Isaac, Ishmael, both Jews, both sons of Abraham. God chooses one. God did not choose the other. That's the point. Now keep going. You say, well, 
Pastor Mike, if, if I remember that story of Isaac and Ishmael, uh, uh, it, it gets kind of messy, and Abraham messes around with Hagar, and there's a lot of sin involved, and I understand why God would choose Isaac. There was a reason that he chose Isaac, and Paul says, okay, let me give you another illustration. Verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, verse 12 and 13, God made a choice between these two boys, born of, Abraham, born of Jacob and Rebekah, he says, verse 12, she was told the older will serve the younger. What does that mean? God made a choice between these two. One would be the son of promise and one would not. You say, well, what have these boys done to deserve it? That's, that's Paul's point. They were still in the womb of their mother, Rebecca. They had done nothing good, nothing bad. They had made no choice. They had, they had turned not their heart toward God. God freely chose of his sovereign choice one and not the other. Heavy. Then he goes on in verse 13, he says, as it is written, and by the way, most of this is quotes from the Old Testament from the book of Genesis. Paul says, Jacob I love, that's the one son that was chosen, but Esau I hated. Well, that doesn't help any. Paul, why, why are you quoting a verse like that? It says God hates. What does that mean? There's two sons in the, in the womb. Neither have done nothing good or bad. Neither has accomplished one or the other. They've made no choice themselves. God chooses Jacob the younger and Esau he doesn't. And the best interpretation I've read of the word hate is it's the same idea when Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you are to hate your family, your brothers, your sisters, your mother, your children. Doesn't mean you literally hate them, but there is a clear preference of one over the other it's a Hebrew idiomatic phrase evidently God had a clear choice that he chose Jacob over Esau now you put this together for us and we're going somewhere okay your big idea was this that God redeems on the basis of his unconditional sovereign choice Paul teaches here that God's redemptive choice is not based on what we've done. It's not based on who we were. Isaac, Ishmael, both Jews, both sons of Abraham. It's not based on what we've done. Jacob, Esau, though they were born, they had neither done anything good or bad. Thirdly, God's redemptive choice is not based on how we would respond. Neither Jacob or Esau had certainly prayed a sinner's prayer or turned toward God in any way. Paul says his choice at this point was not because of works, but because of him who calls. And this is where, brothers and sisters, by the power of the Spirit, we have to turn our attention away from our flesh and our understanding of the way things work to the greatness of God. Look back in verse 11. He says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good, nothing bad, in order that God's purpose of election, God's choosing, His free sovereign choice might stand, not because of works, not because anything they had done, but because of Him who calls. 
What motivated God to choose one over another in the mind of God? We don't understand all of it, but Paul says ultimately it was because of who God is in himself. It was because of the grace of God in and of himself. The big idea, God redeems on the basis of his unconditional sovereign election. And here's your final little caveat. God's choice is not based on who we are, but because of who he is. Paul says, in the mind of God, God makes a free sovereign choice. God is behind all that takes place. You can trust God's redemptive plan to be carried out throughout the ages because behind all of it is a sovereign God who ultimately acts not because of what's in me, not because of what's in you, not because of what I might decide, but because of who God is. Now listen, there's some confusion and struggle with some of that in our hearts, isn't there? But the point is Paul is declaring that you and I as followers of Christ can trust that God's plan of redemption is going to be carried out because behind every act of faith, behind every prayer of faith, behind every act of repentance, behind every gospel proclamation, you say, what about personal responsibility? It's there, and we're going to talk about that in a few weeks because Paul deals with that. But behind all of that is the free, sovereign, gracious electing purposes of a God who is gracious and kind and does all things well. It is because of Him who calls. Listen, there are tons of things we don't understand when we deal with these kind of truths, but the Bible is unashamedly in declaring that God ultimately acts for His own name's sake because of His own glory. You don't have to write these down. You can just maybe look these up on your own. 1 Samuel 12, 22, throughout the Bible it says, "For the Lord, these are not going to be on the screen, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake because it pleased the Lord to make a people for himself for his own namesake. Psalm 106, yet he saved them for his namesake that he might make known his mighty power. 1 John 2.12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus, according to the purpose of his will. For his name's sake, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in Christ Jesus. Paul says you can trust that the redemptive purposes of God are going to be carried out. You can trust the promises of Romans 1 through 8 and all that Paul declares and all that is there. Because rooted in every one of those promises is God who acts with complete freedom and complete sovereignty and he is completely responsible and does it all for his own namesake and for his glory and for us who are clinging to the truths of the gospel there is mystery to that but there is great comfort to that that we can rest in our sovereign God that before personal faith now there are a ton of questions there's questions like okay 
How is it fair that God seems to choose some and not others? Paul's going to deal with that next week. We're going to try to answer it in Romans 9. What about human responsibility? Mankind is completely responsible, and God holds us completely responsible. Paul's going to deal with that in chapter 9. We're going to get there next week. What about evangelism and prayer? All of that is in Romans chapter 10. God has not only made choices of who will believe, God has determined the means by which we will believe through evangelism and prayer. We're going to look at that in chapter 10. Underneath all of that is the sovereign, free, electing, choosing purposes of Almighty God who acts according to His own will. And thank goodness, watch this, brothers and sisters, if we understand our own depravity and we understand our own wickedness, understand I am thankful to God that He acts because of what is in him not because of what is in me and that's the point so God acts with complete sovereignty and complete freedom Jesus said to his disciples you did not choose me I chose you Jesus said all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will in no way turn out turn about Jesus taught this incredible principle, and we're going to look more into it next week. But what do we do with this? So how do we respond to this this morning quickly? I'm going to ask the team just to come on up. They're just going to begin to play. And again, you're going to leave with more questions this morning than answers, and that's okay. Five weeks, we're going to walk through these chapters, right? However you process this this morning, remember that at the end of these three chapters, the Apostle Paul goes to the heights of worship of this God that are unparalleled in the whole book of Romans. So Paul deals with all these things we just talked about, all these questions that we wrestle with, and he gets to the end of Romans, Romans eleven thirty three through 36, we read it earlier, and he says, and God, let this be our heart toward you. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. God, you are infinitely greater than I am. You are God and I'm not. How unsearchable are his judgments. But we're going to do our best over the next few weeks. <laughs> How inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has first given a gift that it might be repaid? For from him, he's the source. Through him, he's the sustainer. And to him, he is the ultimate goal. Are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. To God be the glory. What a Savior. And here's what I know. Here's what I know. Listen. When we get in heaven... And we're there forever and ever and ever. I'm not going to be in heaven patting myself on the back going, man, I'm glad I figured this thing out. I'm going to be in heaven declaring, thank God that from eternity past, God freely made a choice out of mercy to draw me, bring me, redeem me, save me, and bring me to himself. Because the glory is to him who calls, not to the one who is lost. To him. That's the point bow your head and pray with me. Lord, I thank you for this morning. God, would you guide our hearts and in the midst of wrestling with so many tensions of who you are and how you operate and how you work, Lord, let us worship as an act of faith to our great Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray.